Well, good morning. My name is Kevin Maurice, and I'm the youth pastor here at Grace. And today, I'd like to tell you a little bit about myself and share with you a consistent theme that has been running through my life from childhood into high school and college and and seminary and even to this day. You see, I have this deep-seated desire to be special because I live with this universal tension, and I think we all do, of being just one ordinary human person on a planet of seven billion, and entrenched insecurity that I am just a drop of water in a vast ocean or a blade of grass in this immense pasture. But I want to be more than ordinary. I want to be able to to boast about something, to brag about my achievements. I want to be known as extraordinary. And so in seminary, I put in the work so that I could boast in my wisdom and and my papers would be very well written. I showed up to my dorm as a freshman in college and I unpacked my high school letter jacket, ready to wear it around campus, and in, in case anybody asked, I could brag about my illustrious, if not short-lived, high school football career. Even back in middle school, I tried to learn the electric guitar for no other reason than to be known at my school as a music prodigy. I desired, subconsciously or consciously, to be anything other than ordinary, to be able to boast, to brag, to be known. But you know what? The truth is that I'm not going to make it because I'm not the next Jimi Hendrix or Joe Montana and I'll probably never make the New York Times bestseller list. So how do you live with just being ordinary? Today, I'd like to share with you a passage from Scripture that gives me great courage in answering that question. Because the Bible says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The foolish to shame the wise, the weak to shame the strong, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. It appears to me that God isn't necessarily looking for extraordinary people. It it seems that God doesn't only desire the most successful or well-known of us who can boast and brag. In fact, according to Scripture, God likes to use the ordinary. And so today, I want to help us, you and me, to embrace our ordinariness. And I want to show you that is the ordinary things about you 
the ordinary experiences of your life, which God often uses to reveal himself as extraordinary. And this morning, we'll test this hypothesis by examining a moment in the life of one of the most influential people in the Bible. We'll use the life of a king, arguably the king by which all others are measured in Scripture. And we'll use this king as a case study for how God uses the ordinary. And I know what you're thinking. You just said we're going to study the life of a king. How is that ordinary? And what we'll see is that God uses the ordinary for the extraordinary. So if you'll follow me to 1 Samuel chapter 16, we're going to study the anointing of this king, the day that he is selected as the future ruler of Israel. 1 Samuel 16 opens with a prophet, God's representative to his people, a man named Samuel, who is in deep distress. You see, the current human king of God's people is a man named Saul. And what we know about Saul is that he was extraordinary. He could boast because he was from a wealthy family. He could brag about his skill as a warrior, and he was well known as a physical specimen. So Saul was wealthy, he had status, he was handsome and tall, and that just sounds like a king, doesn't it? But Samuel is in despair because it turns out that Saul is not a good king. Samuel wants a king who follows after God, who is loyal to the Lord, but Saul is a man who follows after his own desires. He's loyal to no one but himself. And so Samuel, looking at what he's become, he's disheartened. And in this state, God says to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I've rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse in Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. And so... Samuel goes to Bethlehem to find a king. And what happens next is something similar to a nobility tryout. It's the NFL combine for prospective monarchs. Because Jesse's sons, they're all lined up in front of Samuel so that he can anoint one of them. And first, out comes Eliab. That's Jesse's oldest boy. And and something about this young man is so striking, so winsome. He's got this commanding presence. He's the firstborn son, and and that's an incredibly big deal. He's extraordinary. And Samuel, he thinks to himself, this is it. This is a king. And in a moment, God extinguishes Samuel's hope in this eldest son. Samuel is ready to anoint a ruler, and he sees this remarkable young man in appearance and cultural priority all point to this being the choice. Samuel is measuring Eliab by everything that he displays. But here is how God measures a person. God says, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. 
the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God doesn't look at what we look at. He doesn't measure success or usefulness the way that we do. And so God rejects Eliab. He's the oldest son, probably the most likely candidate. But the show goes on. Jesse calls his next son, but Samuel says, the Lord has not chosen this one either. And the process continues, and the result is the same, nor has the Lord chosen this one. And one by one, the sons pass by, and one by one, they're each told, no, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel has to be thinking to himself, am I even at the right house? Is this the right Jesse? Because this whole event has been like Cinderella. They're all trying to cram their foot into that glass slipper, but it will not fit. And now there are no more sons at the party. But Samuel knows, and he trusts, God sent him here for a reason. This isn't a fool's errand, and so he asked Jesse, are these all of the sons that you have? And Jesse says, well, okay, there's one more, the youngest, but he is the runt of the litter. He's ordinary. He's just out tending to the sheep. And Samuel tells them to fetch this boy, and so they bring in the last brother. And this overlooked child shows up. And immediately, God tells Samuel, rise and anoint him. This is the one. And so Samuel took the horn of oil, and he anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. When we first meet David in the Bible, he is a nobody. He's not even in the scene. He's toiling away in the background, just a kid in a field without a clue of what lay ahead of him. Many of us, we might know the story of, of King David because of his incredible deeds and his triumphs, but the day that he is anointed king, he's an afterthought. Nobody involved in the drama of that day would have guessed that David, of all of his brothers, would be God's chosen one. And to those that knew him, he was simply the boy who took care of sheep. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose the smaller to shame the bigger. He chose the younger to shame the older. And in David's anointing, God chooses a shepherd boy to shame a king. And this story gives me great hope. I'm encouraged by David's anointing because it reveals how God likes to utilize people. God's choice of David is contrary to human reason. He did not fit the profile. His dad didn't even think to bring him to the ceremony. He was out in the pasture with the sheep because he was ordinary. And that is how God likes to operate. God uses ordinary people doing ordinary things. 
but doesn't David's life turn out to be extraordinary? The whole David and Goliath thing, ruling a nation, writing the Psalms. Yes, absolutely. But before any of that, David was an ordinary little boy doing the most routine, mundane task. And even when he kills Goliath, he's only there because he was bringing lunch to his brothers. When he writes the Psalms, he's just spending time alone with God, out in a field, under some stars, or hiding in a cave. David does extraordinary things, but not because there was anything extraordinary about him, but rather about the God that he served. We live in a culture that tells us that being ordinary is pretty much the last thing that you want to be. Popular young adult fiction novels tend to center around these dystopian future societies where everybody's the same, except for our one extraordinarily different young protagonist. So much of advertising is built on this idea of you being unlike the rest. So buy this truck or this phone because you're different from the herd. Apple Computers, their most famous commercial from the 1980s, it was a take on the book 1984 with this young runner sprinting onto the scene and, and throwing a sledgehammer through a TV screen because their computer company would be and think different. And the message is don't be ordinary because you, you're unique. You can boast and brag and be known because you are special. And, and listen, <laughs> to some extent, that is true. Absolutely. You are uniquely you. A specific fingerprint, your DNA, the way that God thought of you and created you, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. As intricately woven together as a winter snowflake. But in another sense, you're a snowflake in the middle of a blizzard because you are not that different than anyone else who has ever walked this planet. And neither am I. And neither was David. God uses ordinary people and he uses ordinary things. David is anointed king in 1 Samuel 16. He's told of the great plans that lay ahead of him. He's standing there on the edge of his destiny. Earlier that day, he was out watching smelly sheep in a field. And the next day, he's out watching smelly sheep in a field. Just one chapter later, and David is back with the sheep. Because God is preparing David for the extraordinary things that, that God will do through him while David is still living and breathing and, and working in the ordinary. Because God uses a pasture to prepare a king. Because in the pasture, God is developing David's heart and also a very particular set of skills. In the obscurity and the monotony of watching sheep, David learns how to use a slingshot, and he gets pretty good at it. That weapon that he kills Goliath with, he had a lot of practice. As a shepherd, David has experience killing a lion 
and a bear. And so when he goes on and, and faces a giant and then armies, and when he faces a king, he's able to be courageous because he's already faced much worse with so much less. In other words, before you can blow up a Death Star, you have to be able to bullseye some womp rats in your T-16 back home. The key, though, the trick, is to not resent those ordinary things back home. While you're in the ordinary, you can't always be waiting to, to be someone or somewhere else. The pasture can be a dirty, stinky, tiresome place. But that's where God develops David's heart. Sitting in the hot sun, watching sheep waddle back and forth, listening to them baa day after day. And then even after God chooses him to be king, David's back in the pasture. That's how you learn humility. It's how you learn patience. God taught David to wait and, and to trust. God grew David in very ordinary soil. And the God who prepared David has been preparing you throughout your life. And so what are your experiences? What's your story? Where, where's your pasture? Because I believe that God takes those building blocks, the, the days and the weeks and the months and the years of our lives, even and perhaps especially the mundane, and he uses them to grow us and to strengthen us and to shape us. And so maybe you're a young parent, and it has been months, but it feels like years since you last got a good night of sleep. And you're at home every day with the kids, watching the clock tick by. Or you're sitting in a car going to work, and then you're sitting at work, and then you're sitting in a car coming home, and then you're right back to the routine. And it's a routine that consists of feeding and changing and bath time and rinse and repeat, and it feels like you can barely come up for breath before it all begins again. And it feels like you're laboring away in a pasture and there are days that you ask, does any of this matter? Is any of this going anywhere? Does anybody notice? Few things seem less spiritual than keeping a herd of smelly sheep in a field. But God uses David's time there to write a story of eternal purpose. Few things may seem less spiritual than changing a diaper. But what if, even in those little moments, those small things, God was working in you? What if we could learn to sanctify the simple things? Because in God's timeline, there is nothing wasted. There are no lost years. The pasture is where he prepares kings. And so wherever your pasture may be, it's the workroom where God is sculpting within you the kind of heart that he desires. It's where he's teaching you dependence and trust in him. Because God uses ordinary people doing ordinary things. And here is what is so promising about that truth. 
And, and here's why we can take courage in being ordinary people. God uses the ordinary for the extraordinary. Just look at David's life and the incredible things that are accomplished. God uses David to slay a giant, to fight wars and establish a kingdom. God institutes a covenant with David, and he tells him, someone from your lineage will be the eternal ruler of God's people. Those are incredible things in David's life. But we cannot forget who David is in the midst of that. He's still an ordinary person, an unremarkable, humble little boy from an unexceptional town and background. And that is who God uses for great things. Our problem, though, is that we tend to underestimate the lasting, eternal significance of simple things. Because God using an ordinary person to do something extraordinary, it may simply look like loving your wife in a way that demonstrates God's love for us. Maybe in, in your context, it is raising your kids intentionally in a home that models grace, the gospel. Maybe it's going to your office or your school day after day and displaying Christ to the people that God has surrounded you with. An ordinary person doing something extraordinary can happen in moments that appear very commonplace. This past March, our high school ministry went down to Houston for a spring break mission trip. And while we were there, we got to participate in an outdoor street church. It's a church in a parking lot where the congregation is mostly homeless men and women. And part of each service includes an area where people can go to get the supplies that they need. And one of our high school guys was working in this area, passing out socks and toothbrushes and, and toothpaste. And a man came up to him and asked, do you have any black pants? Because he had just started a new job, and he needed the pants for his uniform. And so our high school guy, he's digging through boxes. He's scrounging through piles of clothes. He's overturning shelves trying to find this request. And after about 15 minutes, with no black pants in sight, he turns back to the gentleman and says, I'm sorry. But then a thought hits him, and he asks, do they have to be dress pants? The man replies, no. And so our high school guy, he runs over to his backpack, he unzips it, and he retrieves a pair of his own black Nike track pants. The right size, the right color, just the right time. And you want to know where that homeless man is today? He has a job. He has the pants that he needed for his uniform. And that is extraordinary. And so for you here today, perhaps the extraordinary thing that God is calling you to is to sign up to serve somewhere in this church, even though you lack the confidence or the experience. Or maybe what God has been preparing you for is to initiate that spiritual conversation with a friend or a neighbor, or, or mustering up the courage to, to invite them to church. And listen, those may not be the stories that we boast in or brag about. 
And maybe that's not the kind of story that makes you well-known. But those are the stories that God likes to use. God enjoys using the weak, the less than, the small to show off his glory. Martin Luther, the great pastor and theologian of the 16th century, he said it this way, God created the world out of nothing. As long as we are nothing, he can make something out of us. David was ordinary, and God did incredible things through him. You and I are ordinary. And regardless of your intellectual capabilities, your talents, your training, or lack thereof, you are uniquely a part of God's divine plan. And so what if we were able to embrace our ordinariness? What if we could appreciate and maybe even learn to enjoy the ordinary things that we do? Because it's those ordinary things about you, the everyday experiences of your life, which God can and often does use for extraordinary purposes. In fact, in the past 75 years, well over 2.2 billion people on planet Earth have heard the message of the gospel because of one Sunday school teacher. 2.2 billion people, minimum, hearing about who Jesus is and what he has done for us because one Sunday school worker didn't give up on his hyperactive class of middle school boys. You see, the small group leader, he spent time with his students. He prayed for them. He got to know them. And there was one little boy in particular who seemed to have some pretty deep questions. And so one day, he visited this young man at work. And, and during a lunch break in the stock room, he shared the gospel with him. And, and this young boy, he prayed to accept Christ and follow him. That Sunday school teacher's name was Edward Kimball. And I had never heard of him either. But the young man in the stock room was Dwight L. Moody the most influential evangelist of the 19th century. But the story doesn't end there. That's actually where it begins. Because of D.L. Moody, a man by the name of Wilbur Chapman becomes a follower of Christ. Chapman would go on to become a pastor who would preach to thousands, and one day a professional baseball player had the day off. And so he attended one of Chapman's services, and that's how Billy Sunday was converted. The chain continues, and a man named Mordecai Ham becomes a follower of Christ, and, and he begins to share the gospel at tent revival meetings all over North Carolina. And one evening at a meeting, a boy named Billy came to hear the message, and he responded to the gospel, and his life was absolutely transformed. And from that day forward, Billy Graham would go on to preach the gospel in small classrooms, in church auditoriums, even Texas Stadium, from his home office to the White House and all over the world. The most moderate estimates say that in his lifetime, Billy Graham has preached the gospel to more than 2.2 billion 
people. And the chain, it it actually stretches even further uh, because Billy Graham's son, Franklin, he spearheads the Operation Christmas Child ministry, something our church participates in every year. And in 2016, Operation Christmas Child delivered 11,485,662 shoeboxes to children all over the world. Each box contains Christmas presents, Uh, But more importantly, each box tells the story of Christ. And it gives a child somewhere in the world the opportunity to hear about the God who loves them. Those are astonishing numbers. And they are incredible ministries. And they've happened and they continue to happen. Because years ago, a Sunday school teacher whose name we have already forgotten spent time praying with one of his boys. It's all about perspective, isn't it? An ordinary person doing an ordinary thing. That is just who God likes to use. Because God tells us this in the book of Jeremiah. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches, But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord. God is just looking for an ordinary person. He doesn't need someone who boasts about what they can do for him. God doesn't really care whether or not we have a list of accomplishments that we can brag about. And it doesn't really matter if you're well-known. Oftentimes, God just wants you to be someone that he can trust to tell a middle schooler about Jesus, and he'll do the rest. And that should give us great courage, because it means that I don't have to boast in my wisdom. I don't need to brag about my strength, and I'm not merely measured by my status or how well-known I am. If I can simply be who God made me to be, if you and I, if we can have humble hearts and and we can boast in our God, then he may do extraordinary things through some very ordinary people, just like you and just like me. Would you pray with me this morning? God, we come before you humbled by who you are. And God, by the fact that you love us. And so, Father, help us to see how you're working in our lives. God, in in the things that we might otherwise discount or or even ignore. And God, we ask that you would grow us and, and shape us so that we could see ourselves as ordinary people who serve an amazing God. Give us humble hearts and help us to remember you, Father, to help us to remember your Son, because it's in his name that we pray. Amen.